Hello and welcome to Epoch's number 115. Uh, this week we're going to be talking about Black Wednesday and I'm joined by Dan. How are you, Dan? Hello. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, uh, so I think it's a really interesting story if you're interested in the history of finance and mm. money and markets and all sorts of things. It's a story really when John Major tried to take on the German economy and uh, and George and reality, Soros, yes. uh, yeah, and <laughs> and the foreign exchange markets and failed terribly. I, I, I think this one is even bigger than you know just finance and markets and stuff like that. I I think this was a really pivotal moment, and I mean I, I've got I've got a couple of reasons for that. Um, I mean for a start, it gave George Soros an enormous war chest. Now, if you think about all the downstream effects of that, I mean mm. you've got George Soros today who is funding these far left. Um, prosecutors all over the United States who are not enforcing actual laws, but instead using their their, their tenure to go after political opponents. So that I mean, and, and everything else that George Soros is funding. So that that is hugely damaging, and and he got his wealth from this day. And there are other things. Um, I mean, the, what this did is it set the conservatives on a path to ruin. Mm. That resulted in them becoming basically another left wing party in the, in the image of Blair. Um, that was a path that I think started on this day. Mm. Um, and another one, of course, that. is, it, is it, it significantly helped Blair with his uh, 1997 um, landslide win mm. and all of the damage that the Dark Lord did to this country. So the, to the social fabric of, of the United Kingdom, the mass immigration that we've seen, a lot of that was made possible from the downstream effects of this. Mm. So it, it is an, a momentous um, impact um, for what it had, for what you know the downstream effects were. The only positive thing I can point to on this is that um, it it did give it did give you know sort of rockets under the Eurosceptic movement, mm. and probably because of the events of this day was why we never joined the euro mm. and mm. ended up losing the pound. So it's not all bad, but mm. uh, yeah, this this is a, this is one this is a big one. It's a pivotal thing, right? Yeah, it's mm. much more than just a bad day on the markets. Yes, it's a bit more than just an embarrassment for John Major. Yes, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I think there may be ever so slightly playing down the positives or potential positives a long way down the road, but you could say it sort of. Well, it definitely sort of split the Tory party. It made the Eurosceptics mm. have a lot more power. We basically didn't, for one reason or another very much helped the argument why we shouldn't join the euro mm. and you could i think definitely make the argument that it ultimately ended in the brexit referendum that that yeah that even what decades later because this is in 92 september 1992 decades later cameron felt the need to try and once and for all draw a line under it within the tory party mm. uh, and so i've heard yeah. it called white wednesday <laughs> Because yes, it, I suppose you, you could look at it like that. Because it saved us from joining the euro and ultimately yeah. uh, getting our sovereignty back. Because, uh, I mean, I, I talked about it on the effects of, of, of the Tory party, but of course, you know, it, it, it cast a long shadow over Gordon Brown. So Gordon Brown would not, when he became um, Tony Blair's chancellor, he would not take us into the euro because of the, you know, the long shadow of, of the events of that day. Now, before that, um, you know, the European project, it was just grumbling along. It was just mm. something that was happening in the background, much like it was in those European countries um, where, you know, it, it was just something that happened year after year. Mm. And it was only after this that we sort of, it, it was like being splashed with cold water. Mm. It's like, okay, mm. well, maybe we need to reconsider some of this Europeanism. Mm. So, yeah, I, I, I'll accept that, you know, from, from some perspectives, you could actually say that this was a good thing, although I think the, the negatives are also really powerful. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. 
Like George Soros, his globalist goals mm. had to take a back seat for a moment if it meant he could make a billion pounds in one day. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, um, you know, back then he was in money mode. I mean, I, I sure. think the political yeah, activism yeah. was yeah. relatively muted at that point. The yeah. thing is, you, yeah. you take a billion back in 1992, um, even if you just go by the official numbers, that's three billion today. But actually, the thing is, if you, you need to apply a return on investment to that. So, for example, my career return on investment is something like 26%, um, which, which is all right, but I was doing... It's bloody great. Yeah. But, well, I, <laughs> to be yeah. fair, without being too sick of here, yeah. it's brilliant. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty good. So if you were to apply a return on investment to, to that, to a billion in 1992, you know, you, you'd have over a trillion at this point. Right. Now, actually, the, the, the more money you manage, the harder it gets um, to, to, to get a, a good return on it. But, but even still, he is an incredibly wealthy man. He's worth hundreds of billions. And a lot of that would have been really boosted by, by that. And of course, and these days, so his son, I mean, we, we just learned that, um, Soros is basically handing over the empire to, to not his eldest son, but his more political son. So this is going to be an enormous war. Just, I mean, we've, we've got a left-wing organization out there with funding power equivalent to medium-sized governments whose, objective is to destroy the social fabric of the western mm. of the western civilization as fast as it possibly can yeah. and that's coming yeah. from the money that that Soros made yeah because people might you know these days zoomers or people that just don't know the backstory of George Soros might think of him as just this it's just a billionaire that just exists in the world but mm. first and foremost he was um a, a, a trader like a fund manager Oh, it was a, it was a really really good one. He was great at it. Yeah. To be fair to him, one of yeah. the greatest traders of yeah, all time. Yeah. I mean, he could the ability to sort of see the future or predict what was coming. Mm. Uh, he was he was great at it because uh, there's the Soros Fund Management Group, or there's uh, what's the there's a larger group that um, Soros Fund Management was involved in. But anyway, the Quantum Fund. That's maybe? it, Quantum. Yeah. yeah. So even though he made about a billion dollars, I'll get into this later when we get into the extra mm. details of exactly what went down and all the numbers and everything. Mm. He made about a, <clears throat> a billion pounds or dollars. Makes a big difference, actually. Anyway, about a yeah. billion in profit. But he was exposed to something like 10 billion. So Yeah, um, he, he would have leveraged it up. Yeah, yeah that he leveraged everything he possibly could. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. Soros has written a book on investing, which I really must read at some point, because even though he is um, distilled evil, mm. he's still a bloody good trader. He still yeah. knows his business. Yeah. So I must read that book and just try and put aside in my head the um, you know the, the fact that I'm reading the words of, of Beelzebub. But, <laughs> but yeah, he, he, is a, he is a fantastic trader. I think, I've said this before somewhere, I think that uh, the difference between successful people, and this isn't necessarily to do with intelligence or anything or wisdom, but just whether you're a success in the world, mm. is whether you're able to see a few steps ahead. So, for example, someone that can't stop going into prison because they just rob a liquor store, mm. go to prison for that, come out and rob a liquor store again. Like They're not looking one step ahead, Yeah. right? And then there's normal people that yeah. just exist in the world. And then there's people like yourself or George Soros or any good well, manager. I, 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 and like I, you're seeing many steps ahead. Yeah. Correctly, though, correctly. Yeah. Well, I'll tell, I'll, tell you the, um, I'll tell you the difference between me and George Soros. The, the, the di it's not so much that we – I mean, we can both look ahead and see um, the future – the difference between me and him is that he gets there a few days earlier than I do. 
right? right? And that makes all the difference. It, I mean, it really does. If you if you can get there a couple of days quicker than than the rest of the market, mm. you're going to capture like 80%, 90% of the returns. So even though when I sit down and do my brokenomics, I think that I'm, you know, putting out the right stuff about, you know, where the where we where we're going. Um, to be fair, if if I could if I could run that same thought process um, by looking at a news article and get there within half an hour and then place a trade, you know, to be fair, right. I'd probably be running one of the world's largest hedge funds. Right. It's not so much the it's not so much the um, the destination. It's, it's 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 how quickly you get there. Right, right. Yeah, I can I can see that. Yeah, that's why great traders on all sorts of things, not just uh, um, uh, the money markets, not just f foreign currencies, but mm. anything really equities or or commodities or anything they find a bit of news or a new bit of information yeah. and sort of immediately calculate what that means for yeah the i mean I, I can give you a really good example i mean there was there's one fantastic i can't remember the name of the chap now i'll come to me in a minute but um do you remember when those 4g licenses came out when government started auctioning off 4g mm -hmm. um you know the thing on your phone um which we're, we're we're moving away now to 5g but 4g licenses came out whenever it was like 15 years ago and the uk government decided that they instead of just selling them they were going to auction them to the highest bidder now that news came out and one hedge fund manager he looked at that and he thought hang on a minute all of these phone companies they are going to have to they have to the, the game incentives is they have to bid up to the highest level that they possibly can all of these companies are running with massive debt they don't have big cash burden uh, cash piles it's going to basically bankrupt the telecoms industry so he saw that news article and you know Within the space of an afternoon, he figured out the downstream effects of it, and he was shorting um, the telecoms industry. He made an absolute fortune. Now, again, you know, I, I would have got there eventually. Mm. I wouldn't have got it the same afternoon as right. the news came out, and yeah, that's why yeah. he's running a hedge fund worth, you know, <laughs> many hundreds of billions. Mm. So, yeah, that the the ability to see and the speed of it is is what makes a difference. And and mm. Source was brilliant at that. Yeah, yeah. There's few people that can do it. So, for example, where I mentioned is, and it's in an indirect sense, it was John Major against <laughs> against Soros. It's much more than yes, that. So, 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 so politicians, oh, they are so far down. Yeah, that's what the, I was going to say. The ability to to do this stuff. That I mean, was the point I was going to make. Yeah. They're not even playing the same sport. Yeah, in in that in that uh, battle of abilities to see into the future, yeah. John Major was absolutely outclassed. By oh. Not just Soros, but all sorts of fund managers, yeah. all sorts of people that are in the money markets at that time. Yeah. He was way, way, way behind. I think John Major, just to say this to get it out there, I think he's extremely dull-witted. I think he's a dull-witted person. I'd even go so far as to say he's almost stupid. Um, some of the decisions he makes in this when we go through it, hmm. it's going to be like, why did you think that, John? Sorry, Sir yeah. John, sorry. Yeah. He's a knight of the garter, isn't he? Yeah. Um, what... What made you think that, John? Like, why, why haven't you changed your mind now? This new bit of information's come out. Explain well, yourself. I mean, the, the, the skill set and incentives of politicians is just completely different. If if, yeah, if right, you yeah, are yeah. if you're a trader, that is the answer, um, isn't it? There's that. Yeah, you. If you're a trader, you need to have strong convictions, but they must be very loosely held. You must abandon those convictions. Um, on the drop of a hat. Otherwise, you're going to lose all of your money. But politicians, because it's not their own money they're spending as taxpayers' money, mm. you know, they can be pig-headed. And actually, most of the time it works because there's always more taxpayers' money mm. or they can print it. Mm. They can get away with it. And actually, one of the lessons perhaps from, from this day is perhaps if he had been even more pig-headed, he might have been able to get through it. You know, maybe if, he, if they just kept on firing the billions at it and they just didn't care what it costs... 
eventually um, they could have beaten the market. Well, you you, you said so? it, but yeah, I mean, Japan Japan has done this for years. That, that they have they have taken. I mean, every so often you get a George Soros type who thinks I'm going to take on the Bank of Japan, and I'm going to break and I'm going to break their um, their yield curve control. Every time it's a we don't make a trade <laughs> because they they just like nope we are not moving. Whereas whereas um, uh, you know possibly to their credit they realised that they were hiding to nothing on this one and they let it go, but they could have kept on firing billions and billions at it and mm -hmm. and maybe you know the you know the maybe the government's policy could have could have remained irrational for longer than the, the traders could have remained solvent. Maybe maybe uh, it's difficult to know. Um, yeah, I mean I don't think the Bank of England had. Well, it definitely didn't have an endless reserve of foreign currency. Because if you're going to buy a pound, yeah, if you're going to buy a sterling, you have to do it with either gold or just other foreign currencies you've got. Yeah. So we had a finite amount of dollars and yen mainly. Yeah. Uh, anyway. I mean, you, you could have got creative with, with, I don't know, something like if they had swap lines back then to another. Yeah, probably, they were, if you they really were, wanted to. Yeah. Could, yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying they could have done, but at least they let it go when they did. Yeah. Something. Yeah. Yeah. Shall we get into the details yes. of it then? So what happened? So the day, Black Wednesday, is the 16th of September, 1992. Um, and basically, uh, the pound lost a great deal of its value on that day. That's mm. basically the story. But I want to go back. Yeah, you need, you need to start with the ERM, don't yeah. you? Yeah. So the story is really about, it's about Europe and about the ERM. Um, the exchange rate mechanism. So I want to go back to just very briefly, just a few minutes really, um, just talk about some of the earlier things that happened in the the, the, Europe, the the European project of unification and sort of the, very broadly speaking, the economy of the 70s and 80s. So now we've got like the EU, haven't we? Hmm. But that didn't, that wasn't sort of formally come about until the Maastricht Treaty, which is like what, 1992. So before that, and even now, there's there's many layers of. Well, was of, it still the EEC? Then? It was the EEC then, right, yeah. The European Economic Community. That's it, right? So it was more yeah. of an economic club That's than it. a political. Well, I mean, it was a political right. project, but nothing like what it is today. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So there's a few different layers of it, isn't there? There's sort of the European Council, and there's all mm. sorts of things in the Schengen zone nowadays. I mean, there's all sorts mm. of sort of layers and levels to the governance and bureaucracy mm. to it. Uh, but there was less of it back then. But John Major signed the. The, the Maastricht Treaty in, I think, 1992. It was just a little bit before this. Um, yeah. I'm, I mean, it was it was Thatcher who took us into the into the ERM, wasn't it? But uh, John Major was Chancellor while yeah. Thatcher was Prime Minister and, and, and Thatcher was resolutely against it. Mm. But uh, Major just wore her down and eventually got mm. her against mm. her better judgment to go into the ERM. And I think that was about two years before. That'd be about 1990. Yeah, yeah. It was just before... She left office, which was, yes. if I remember correctly, it's right at the end of 1990 or the very beginning yeah. of 1991. Yeah, right. It's about then. I think the very end of 1990 is when mm. Major replaced Thatcher. Um, mm. So just to say ever so quickly then that the, the, the European project um, to become a sort of su super state, um, one thing I would say, my, it's a bit of my opinion, some people might be able to argue uh, that what I'm about to say is wrong, but... Um, I think the project was always to be a full super state. I think, oh, in, yeah. you know, even in, in Brexit in yeah. 2016, some, some Remainers would try and make the argument that, oh, no, no, that's not what it is. That's not, 
I don't think that, that argument is remotely credible. I don't think in probably in many other countries they'd even try to make that argument. Oh, yeah. Like in France, they don't even try to make that argument, I don't think. Yeah, um, no, for, for a lot of people, it's always been about the super state. Yeah, right. Um, no. they've, they've just been, you know, relatively careful not to make those arguments in English on, on English news channels. Right, right. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's a, I mean, that, that, that guy who's active now, Guy Verhofstadt, mm. who, who, who's always, um, you know, speaking on, on these things, you know, he, he has never made any bones about the fact that it, it is a European super state that he, he is driving towards. And, um, you know, not for this podcast, but then there's the whole world government agenda that has sort of been pushed by Bilderberg and the Trilateral Commission and so on. Mm -hmm. It's all part of mm -hmm. that thinking that came out of the, um, you know, the, the Second World War, which is the only way that we are going to achieve the sort of political unity we need is if absolutely everybody in the world, world is under one government. And the the um, the European superstate, as they like to see it, was a was a massive step on that road. So absolutely, that's what it yeah. was. So when I say superstate, I mean one European government with one economy, one currency, mm. uh, one army, etc., etc., etc. That's mm. sort of the end goal. But you can't just you can't just immediately do that. So there had to be all these steps. There has to be all these steps mm. to get the European nations to sort of abandon their own nationality and sovereignty. Mm. Um, and uh, so, I mean, that project really started in the 50s. Um, and yeah. anyway, by the 1970s, there was, um, well, quite a severe economic downturn for Britain anyway, for Britain. Um, something like a, a mini depression maybe is a bit strong, but certainly a long, prolonged, quite deep recession in the 1970s, and mm. um, speaking with very, very broad strokes of the brush here. In the 80s, there was sort of a famous boom, if you like, the, mm. the classic boom of the 1980s. But by the end of the 1980s, by the very early 1990s, again, there was a bit of a bust cycle. So mm. it always goes in cycles of boom and bust. Um, so by the 90s, we had the sort of the, the, the heyday of the 80s was over. And we had quite well, very high interest rates, sort of 10, 11% interest rates, uh, high unemployment, uh, and high interest rates really hurts people trying to pay mortgages or trying to save money or exports, trying to sell things abroad is very expensive, so people just don't, yeah. don't buy it. It has them. a lot of downsides, but it, I mean, it, has, it, has, it has positives for some people. So if you are a foreign central bank and you're thinking, okay, let's say you're, I don't know, Kenya or you know, one of those sort of countries, your own currency is going to be ver is, is very variable, not that secure. And you're thinking, I want to hold reserves of, of some other currency. If you're putting it in sterling, well, sterling is a, is a is a good brand. It's a very stable thing. And if you're getting 11% interest rates, that's a pretty good level of return for holding a currency in something which is fairly low risk, like sterling. So you know it 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 was it did all of those damaging things that you just said to the people in the country. Right. But it would have helped contribute to quite a strong pound. Right, yeah. Okay. Mm. Yeah. So the value of the pound was quite high, though, relatively mm. considering. So, yeah, it might, it might be good for foreign investors or something or foreign currency speculators. But for Britain, our yeah. own internal domestic economy yeah. was in really poor shape in the yeah, early good, 90s. Good for importers because the pound buys you more. Right. Bad for exporters yep. Yep. because, the, right. because you know, right. the... the, the the exchange rate that the other people get is getting as low, but of course, the when we import goods, that means somebody else has made them. When we export goods, it's because we've made them. So yeah, you 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 want to you want a reasonably strong currency, but you don't want it um, too strong. It can certainly be too strong. Yeah, All right, absolutely, yeah, because mm. you just can't really export anything. You can't yeah. really sell things abroad. No one wants 
I was yeah. prepared to buy it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so just very broadly then, they got the, the bust of the 70s, the boom of the 80s, and then sort of the bust of the early 90s again, uh, um, that the economy is sort of in the doldrums and that our, certainly our interest rates were very high. Um, so in the Tory party, you've got or had back then um, sort of Eurosceptics and uh, sort of pro-Euro Not, not many, to be fair, back then. Right. They sort of called them wets and dryers. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Thatcher, though, herself, was sort of famously a fairly Eurosceptic. You know, yep. the, the famous thing where she said, no, 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 to a few different things that um, Mr. Delors wanted, that the European community sort of insisted we do and wanted from us. And she's just like, no, I'm not doing that. Mm. No, that's it. End of discussion sort of thing. Yeah. And she didn't want to join um, uh, the mechanism you know, the exchange mechanism, which, and what that is, I suppose, in a nutshell, is that they wanted to peg the main currencies to the Deutschmark. Mm. What that means is instead of having loads of different exchange rates between all the different, because this is pre-Euro, so all the different countries have got their own thing. Italy's still got the lira. Germany's got the Deutschmark. All the, all the countries have got yeah. their own currencies. Instead of having, you know, 20, 30 different exchange rates, you peg your currency to the Deutschmark, which is the most stable one. That's well, what, well, that's it, what everyone It's basically thought. a pilot project for the euro because the euro is everybody so has it, the same it's currency. one step euro. towards yeah. that. Yeah. And the, the ERM mechanism was, okay, well, we're not going to have one currency, but we are going to make sure that the currencies are fixed against each other so that they don't move. So it is basically the same thing as having well, one currency. Within a small range, at least. Yeah, yeah. To, a, yeah. A, a small yeah. range. Yeah. So, you know, the 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 underpinnings of um, the EU project has always been Germany because it's had the strongest economy. Um, they had a lot of financial discipline because they had been through the Weimar Republic era and they had experienced hyperinflation. And it was seared onto the cultural um, memory that you must not let inflation get out of control. So they had a very hawkish and very independent central bank. And so they were, at the time, the kind of model for how you do monetary policy. So the rest of the um, European countries, and also Britain, um, thought, okay, well, what we're going to do is we are going to have a sort of proxy single currency type arrangement where we are going to make sure that our currency does not move out of too I mean, you can fluctuate a little bit, but but not much away from the Deutschmark. Mm. So it's it's mm. it's it's very much the pilot project for the euro. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Sort of a some economists, because I'm not a true economist in any sense, but true economists say it's sort of a, an absolutely necessary first step before you go into uh, a single currency. Um, <sighs> yeah, I. I mean, one of, one of the big takeaways from from this whole thing that we're talking about now is that the pilot project was a failure, right, yeah. right, and, yeah. and yet they decided, oh, okay, the pilot project was a failure. Mm, let's do the euro anyway. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you remember when uh, Germany screwed over Greece in the last few years? Mm. Remember that when Greece looked like they were going to default, and Germany was like, "Well, we'll lend you all this money, but you'll you'll have to be our economically oh, speaking our bitch forever now." Yeah, I mean, what what you've they got, and you've got no choice. How about that? I mean, it's like. Uh, no, no, no wonder so many Greek people are leaving. Who it's, wants they, that? They have been ethically country. screwed over yeah. by Germany. Who would want that for their country? Yeah. Well, we get screwed over. Italy gets screwed over by Germany in this story. Mm. Um, but yeah, so um, the the exchange rate mechanism. So you you pin or you peg your currency to the Deutschmark. But what that means is, though, um, if the uh, the Bundesbank, the German central bank, 
raises or lowers its interest rate, you've sort of got to do it as well, mm. or at least very closely mirror it. <coughs> um, yeah. So, well, on, on a practical day-to-day level, if you've decided that the the uh, Deutsche Mark and the pound have to trade at a similar level. Uh, I mean, on a, on a practical day to day level, if if more people are selling the pound um, or or selling the the Deutsche Mark than you want to, and and that and the values of those two things start to move away, the central bank has to come in and start buying up uh, pounds or Deutsche Marks, whichever way they they need it to go, to to basically create uh, artificial uh, supply or demand to get them back in line. So on a day to day basis, it's, it's it's a lot of buying and selling, of intervening in the market. To, to, to push that peg back in line. And and the sort of medium view is that you do what you just said, which is you match the, the interest rates so that, you know, people should not want to buy and sell um, because th- they should be roughly equal and therefore there's no reason to, to, to buy and sell. So you put those two mechanisms together and, and that's basically the functioning of the EOM. So the problem with all of that is just to sort of zoom out in economic terms at this moment mm. in the story the problem with all of that is that's loads of state intervention. Mm. Loads. Yes. So again, in the broadest economic theory terms, um, it, there's people like uh, Keynesians, yeah. after John Maynard Keynes, who are for as much and any intervention at all times, whatever you need to do, do it. Mm. And then the sort of the Austrian school where they're like, sort of never do it, don't even have a central bank or whatever, you know, never ever. Oh, that's where I am. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. And then there's people sort of in the middle, monetarists, the sort of Thatcher's government, some of her, her what was it, um, uh, Jeffrey Howe, people like that, or sort of um, somewhere in the middle, mm. right? But anyway, the point is, if you're going to join the ERM, then you're sort of locking yourself in to the government and your central bank, sort of constantly fiddling yeah. with interest rates well, and, and, and buying and selling currencies. And, and the value of your currency, it should be a price signal. It should be telling you something about that country. If, if the value of your currency is falling, it tells you that the, um, the underlying uh, factors of that economy are not performing. And if it's rising, it's telling you basically that that, that country is, is doing well. So, mm. I mean, it, it is an important price signal. And, and basically, what, what, what I mean by price signal is it's a reflection of reality. So yeah. what the ERM project was is is basically saying we can, um, by government fiat, suspend reality. <laughs> right. Which didn't work. It's mad, right? At best, it's it's sort of um, naive or short-sighted or something. And yeah. at worst, it's sort of mad, right? <laughs> uh, um, it's, it, it's at least hubristic. Yeah, it's like it's a slippery slope. Again, to be quite nice about it, it's a slippery slope. Mm. You're sort of almost certainly going to come a cropper at some point. But it's 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 the mindset the government could do what it wants. Right. Or it can manipulate world markets, currency markets, anyway, yeah. just exactly as it needs to. Yeah. It's like okay, because we talked about Soros sort of taking on the Bank of England or something. It was it's more than just Soros. It, yeah. He was just one of the big fish yes. involved in it. It was. Oh, all, it, was all, yeah. it was all speculators. It was the currency markets, I mean, all, which all, are the all biggest the investment banks in got, the world. Because right, yeah. I mean, this one it was it was so bloody stunningly obvious. And, and I mean, I, I I was I was just a young teen at the time. So I but but I did participate in another one. So an, another one of these situations was when Gordon Brown decided he was going to sell off all the gold. <laughs> and not only was he going to sell off all the gold, that he was going to announce in advance on the, the which day he was going to sell it. So I just looked at this and thought, well, okay, well. 
thank you for the free money. Mm. So I'll, I'll wait basically until the price gets pushed down. Then I'll go and buy a whole load of um, gold or gold options. I mean, I, bought, I think I bought a whole load of warrants. And, um, you know, within, within a month, it's back up in the sale. It's like, okay, well, th- thanks for yeah. buying, thanks for, for the deposit on the house. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But if they're just going to hand you money, yeah. you know, you can take it. And, and the ERM was, it was an even more extreme example of this. It was, it was government policy basically saying to everybody in the city, would you like some cash? Yeah. 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 Buy some, b- borrow some pounds now. Yeah. <laughs> Because yeah, you're gonna sell them, yeah, uh, short them now, mm. and you're gonna make some money. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I'll get into the details of sort yes. of exactly that, uh, how exactly you make money by doing that in in a bit. Uh, but just to say, um, uh, this idea that in the Tory Party, people considered, as you said, that the German economy was um, the most stable, um, and that you could sort of uh, peg our currency to to the Deutschmark. Mm. Um, but we already had really high interest rates, sort of 10, 11%. Yep. So if for whatever reason, you, you hoped it was never really going to happen, but if for whatever reason um, the Bundesbank did want to raise its interest rates, then you're forced to raise them too, which could be a tipping point. Like you sort of can't raise them anymore yep. for political reasons or just for economic reasons. You can't do it. It would It would tank your whole economy if you were to raise your interest rates anymore but you've got to because you're in the erm yeah so suddenly suddenly you're in a real trouble and and that's basically what happened and and we joined at a high at a high rate yeah really high yeah yeah so i mean if if you were to if you were to plot on a chart um the pound versus the deutschmark you know you would see that line bob up and down but you basically have two bands of you know it tends to go up to this level it tends to go down to this level It, it tends to bounce between that range and basically what we did is we waited until we were at the top of that range and they said, right, that's the level we're going to lock in. Mm. Uh, and, and you can kind of see the politicians wanted because they want, oh, yeah, we've got, a, we've got a strong currency. So you can see them wanting to lock in at that, at that high rate. Mm. But actually, um, it was folly oh, yeah. because you should have picked the middle of the range. Yeah. And apparently there was no negotiation about that. John Major yes. just picked it. Yeah. And... Uh, when they went to... Because he didn't understand what he was doing. Uh, yeah, he's not an economist. Yeah. Despite being chancellor. That's one thing I find yeah. incredible, that quite often you get chancellors who are not economists, not even close. Mm. Not even close. Like maybe some of them, like Jeremy Hunt now, I think, did PPE. We might have done economics or something on history of economics. But loads of chancellors are not economically savvy whatsoever. Yeah. Um. I don't. I don't think being, doing PPE will will get you to the point of being that's not enough, savvy. Is it? But yeah, you're not going to be like yeah, like John Major. As this story exposes, mm. doesn't seem to know what he's doing really. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at LotusEaters.com.